Amen. Well, I see Miss March, she got here. I was, I, was, I was very concerned, you know, with the conference attendees here and consuming some of our regular members' seats. Uh, <laughs> I was real concerned about Miss Margie, little, little lady right here, the red top, fourth pew. Although her, her, actual, her actual pew is the third pew. So you got, you got her a spot. You got her a spot in her, in her, in her pillow. And folks, talking about a storm, Miss Margie, I don't know her exact age. I will just say she's on up there. Uh, uh, but she was in a German concentration camp uh, for uh, a number of years. Uh, she had uh, a number of her family uh, killed, saw her brother shot in the head and killed by the Germans. Uh, went into the concentration camp with her uh, sister. Uh, they were just teenage girls, young teenage girls. And it is a remarkable, remarkable story of uh, God's uh, grace bringing them through that storm. And uh, the favorite part of the story is how... Uh, she was re- reunited with her sister, which is, was just a, a, a miracle, because they eventually got separated, went into different concentration camps. It's what? Tomorrow's Miss Margie's birthday. So, uh, go ahead. Happy birthday. <laughs> uh, she's embarrassed. Amen. Thank you. You just made her day. You just made her day. After every single service, she gives me an uglier Andy. Uh, she gives us some candy, chocolate candy. And not just any chocolate candy. This is the stuff from Europe. I mean, the special stuff. And uh, it's uh, really, really good. Well, we've had a, we've had a wonderful weekend. Amen? Amen. And uh, uh, we should this morning be on our fourth session, uh, but we didn't get very far in the third session last night. Uh, we've looked, in the first session, we looked at forecasting the coming storm. And then in the second session, uh, looking at that marvelous passage at the end of Hebrews 11, uh, how to weather the storm, and now we're looking at advancing through the storm. We just don't want to weather the storm, we just don't want to endure it, but we want to advance for the glory of God, and especially advance the gospel of Christ, even when we're met with opposition and hostility uh, in our lives. And what we're looking at in this session, I'll just do a very, very brief review because I don't want to take a lot of time and we need some time to uh, finish this up. And I'm, I'm at, I actually, just a few moments ago, I'm just going to, I'm taking a totally different direction than what I originally intended. Although I will cover the material that you have in your hands, I'm just going to do it in a little different way. I'm going to focus a little more on a couple of client testimonies to drive home uh, the truth with so many uh, new folks here uh, this year. And uh, I, think you'll, I think you'll appreciate it. But we're, we're, we're focusing on the book of Philippians. And the reason we focused on the book of Philippians is that the Apostle Paul, of course, wrote the book when he was imprisoned in Rome for his faith in Christ. He didn't know if he would live or, or die. Uh, and he was very concerned for the church at Philippi because they had come under increased uh, persecution. Uh, they were in a terrible straits. 
They were being economically blackballed in the city. Uh, Christians literally could not find work. Uh, they were in, in destitute poverty. They were being ridiculed. They were being slandered. They were being mistreated. Uh, some of them were being jailed. And, of course, there was a the potential of martyrdom. And, of course, the reason why it was so bad in Philippi is because Philippi was the little seedbed for what was called the emperor cult, uh, where they worshipped Caesar as God himself. And we looked at that uh, last night, how some of his primary titles, they actually called him Savior, they called him Lord, they called him the Son of God, they called him the High Priest. And because of uh, the Christians' uh, uh, resistance to acknowledging him as their Supreme Lord, because who was their Supreme Lord? Jesus. That put them on a collision course uh, with the nation of uh, Rome. So Paul was very concerned that uh, with this persecution that they would not retreat. He wanted them to continue to go forward and to advance the gospel. And what he basically does, he says, look at me. Follow my example. And in the book, he gives four resolutions that set the direction for his life. And he says, I want you to adopt these same resolutions in your life as you encounter opposition and suffering, and you continue to go forward and advance the Jesus, uh, gospel of Christ. And we looked at the first one last night, and that was to live for Christ in all circumstances. Uh, this is where Paul said, for me to live is what? Christ, and to die is gain. And we saw that the application was that we're not to focus on escaping circumstances, but exalting Christ and advancing the gospel. We're not to whine, but we're what? To shine. Uh, in other words, our first response when we encounter difficult circumstances should not be necessary to escape, but to turn to God, put our focus there, and say, God, I'm going to give you the freedom now to use these circumstances in the way that you would desire to provide a platform for me to put Christ on display and to make him known uh, to others. And let's move quickly to the second point, which you see there in the second chapter, and his resolution there was to love like Christ in all relationships. In other words, if you're going to go forward and advance the gospel in persecution, there's got to be that commitment to, love, to live for Christ in any and every circumstance, but also to love like Christ in all relationships. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude or this mind in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, any of you conference attendees that have sat under my ministry, my training, you know that I do a, uh, uh, some training uh, using this passage uh, to help us understand how to better relate to our clients in the actual counseling room and how to build an effective relationship with them where you can hopefully have the opportunity not only to see that girl turn from abortion to choose life, uh, but also to open up her heart uh, to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, matter of fact, I'll be doing that workshop at the, uh, at the uh, Heartbeat Conference co coming up in, in April. But today we're, we're focusing on this same truth as it would relate to encountering those that would oppose us. And what Paul is saying here, God often is using uh, that opposition coming against us to give us an opportunity to show them the authenticity of Christ in order to bring them to Jesus. And we need to realize that. So look at those uh, sub-points underneath there very, very quickly, uh, what love is. 
Love is thinking about others first with what? The mind of Christ. And you say, see that in verse 3 where he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility or lowliness of mind, you're to regard others as what? More important than yourself. And that would also apply to your persecutors, to those that are opposing you. He wants you to see them as individuals that he died for, that he desires to redeem. And just like we were healed through his wounds, often God allows us to become wounded, that through our wounds His grace would be displayed, and we would have the opportunity to extend His forgiveness as He extended forgiveness to us when we were at our worst. And often God uses that even to win those that would oppose us. And then second love is looking at others with the eyes of Christ. Uh, Verse 4 says, do not look out for your own personal interests. It's not about you. Look out for the interests of others. And that word look is an intense word in the Greek text, and it has the idea to let your focus be on that other person, and let the goal, let the ambition of your life be to further what's best for them. So Jesus says when you encounter, or Paul is saying when you encounter difficulty, when you encounter opposition and persecution, don't retreat into self-centeredness and woe is me. But he's saying... Walk in my grace. See my, your offender as someone that I love. That you would put their interest above your own interest. And you would desire to seek their welfare. And then love, the third thing, is embracing others with the arms of Christ. Uh, verses 5 through 7 says, what, Let this attitude be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the very what, form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing too selfishly grasp, but he emptied himself of everything but what? Love. Taking upon himself the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So he's saying, just like I embraced you with an unconditional love, I want you to embrace your persecutors with an unconditional love. And I want you to pray as I prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And there's a beautiful example of Stephen. I wish we had more time to look at that where he actually did that as he uh, was dying Uh, in light of his, and don't ever forget, I am convinced that is when God began to prick the Apostle Paul's heart, right there. Remember, Paul was present, overseeing the death of Stephen, and so Paul saw that glory of God that the Bible says literally lit that man's face up as he was dying, as he cried out for forgiveness for those who were taking his life, praying for the Apostle Paul. So you never know how God's going to use you, even with those who oppose you. And then notice that fourth one, love is uh, persevering with others with the heart of Christ, which says he humbled himself to the point of what? Death. So we're to love them to death. We're to love them to death, to the point of death. There's no limits of how far God desires us to go to reach people uh, for Christ. So the application is simply this, and it boils down to receive people, even your opposition, as gifts from God to teach you deeper depths of Christ's love and how to reach people with the gospel. Great testimony here. I, I mentioned this Friday night that I'd try to work this in somewhere, but uh, the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania Center is here. And uh, 
Years ago, I did their fundraising banquet, and I'll never forget, never forget the client testimony prior to my talk. This woman got up, and, and, and this was her testimony. She, number one, and this is important to the testimony. You understand why. She was a little older than most of our clients. She was probably in her upper 20s, right probably at about 30. She was a woman that was uh, probably at least six feet tall and very athletic, uh, very athletic, uh, a strong woman. Now, this is what she said. She said, before I went into the pregnancy center there in Harrisburg, I knew that they were Christian, I knew that they were pro-life, and I hated everything they stood for. And so she said, I went in with two objectives, two goals. Number one, I wanted to go in and to see how miserable I could make things for them. That's literally what she said. And then she said, second, I did want to take advantage of the free pregnancy test. She was concerned that she was pregnant. And she didn't have any money to go anywhere else, and they had this free service, so she wanted to take advantage of that. So she walks into this pregnancy center. She gets hooked up with this woman that's going to a volunteer counselor. They go into the counseling room together, and this is what she said. She said, the person they stuck me with was, number one, much younger than I was. It was a girl in her early 20s, a homemaker. She said she was this tiny, petite little girl skinny little girl, and she said, I, with one hand, I could have just crushed her. That's exactly what she said. So, she said, she begins to try to minister to me, and I just interrupted her, and I said, you blankety blank blank, I mean, she just lit the room up with every vulgar curse word, I mean, cussing this one, you this, that, this, that. I just want you to know I don't want to hear anything you have to say. I don't want to see anything you want to show me. I just want my pregnancy test, and I'm going to get out of here. And then she said, and I, she said, I was purposely coming on because I, I wanted to hurt this woman. I, I wanted to make life miserable for her. And she says, but the meaner I got, I became even more frustrated and irritated because I could not knock that stupid smile off her face. <laughs> Now, attendees, let's be honest. That volunteer was dying a thousand deaths on the inside. She was thinking, if I survive this experience, I am walking out of here and I am never coming back again. That's exactly what she was thinking. But like a good soldier, she stuck, stuck to her training and she knew what her mission was, and she just, best she could, she hung, she hung in there. Well, the girl had a positive test result. And when she discovers that, she just unleashes on this volunteer counselor. Even worse than ever before. Again, with every vulgar word imaginable, she jumps up and she begins to leave. Just screaming all these vulgarities at her. The volunteer counselor stands with her, and she just steps in front of her, where it causes the woman to pause for a moment, and then this little volunteer looks up at her. This is honest truth now. She looked up at her, and she said, before you leave, would you give me the privilege of hugging you? She said, when that woman said that to me, I said, She's crazy. She's an idiot. What's wrong with this woman? 
I mean, how could she be asking that? And she said, before I could scream, no, I'm out of here, she said she had me in her arms. Uh, at least the best she could get me in her arms. And she said when she got me in her arms, she would not let go. And then she said this. She said, I suddenly broke. And I began to uncontrollably weep. And I could not stop weeping in her arms. And she said, we literally stood there for probably a minute or two with me just weeping in brokenness. And she said, here's the reason why. Again, remember, she's almost 30 years old. She said, that was the first time in my life that anyone had ever expressed any physical affection towards me that did not have an ulterior motive to abuse or use me. This girl had been abused, sexually molested as a child, and that helps you understand in her wounds how she had become so hard. And then she said, counseling session didn't end, that's when it just began. She said, I sat back down, and yes, I turned from abortion to choose life, and she had her baby there at the fundraising banquet showing her baby off. And then she said, and that day, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The power of hug, of a hug. The power of what? Love. The power of love. The power of love. Look at the third resolution that Paul challenged them with as they confronted opposition. To look to Christ in all things. To look to Christ in all things. In other words, never take your eyes off of Him because He's the ultimate prize. Philippians 3.14, I press on toward what? The goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Look at that quote by C.S. Lewis. Such a powerful quote. And he's referring to his relationship with the Lord. He says, if you're not approaching Him, if you're, not approaching, Je if you're approaching Jesus, not as the goal, but as a road, not as the end, but as a means, you're not approaching Him at all. That's powerful. If you're approaching Him, if you're approaching Jesus, not as the goal, but as a road, not as the end, but as a means, you're not really approaching Him at all. What is C.S. Lewis saying? He's saying Jesus is to be the end of all things, right? He's to be our primary focus. We're to maintain Him as our first love, our greatest passion and our pursuit. And the two primary goals that we ha we've, we're having in this conference this weekend is that God will use this weekend, first, to renew our first love for Jesus. Amen, attendees? And then second, that we would renew our commitment to the priority of the gospel in our lives and in our ministries. Uh, you know, it's in this section where Paul talks about the value that he had placed on Jesus. He says, I count all things loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Him. Yea, I count all things as rubbish, as garbage in comparison to knowing Him. And then he, he talks about his longing to know experientially the power of His resurrection, to be made conformable to His death, to know the fellowship of His sufferings. 
He talks about this one thing I do. I forget what lies behind. And I'm looking ahead, keeping my eyes on the prize, Jesus. And attendees, we must forever keep our eyes on the prize. Amen? Let me use another client testimony to give you an example of what first love is, what first love really is, and what the gospel is meant to produce in every believer's heart and life. And by the way, attendees, do you know what the first probably telltale sign is in your ministry that you're drifting from your first love? Because it can be a very, very subtle thing. And here it is. You find your ministry more a routine to endure than a relationship to enjoy. And if you're there, you've started the drift. I'll say that again. And this applies to everyone in every area of life. It's when you begin to see the ministry as a routine to endure instead of a relationship to enjoy is the first step. In other words, when it begins to be duty, drudgery instead of delight, because it's an act of worship towards Jesus. We had a girl that came through our pregnancy center, need to know a little bit about her background. Her name was uh, Billy. Um, Billy was sexually molested by her stepfather from the time she was a very small girl uh, till she was about 12 years of age. Billy will tell you that that literally stripped her of any sense of childhood uh, innocency. Uh, at the age of 12, uh, she began to be sexually active with boys. Uh, by the age of 14, uh, this had become a significant stronghold in her life. And at the age of 16, she ran away with a much, much older man that literally was the personification of all that evil could be. I'll never, ever forget asking Billy the question, Billy, would you mind just opening up your heart and telling me how was it that you got connected with him? And this was her answer, almost verbatim. She said, Brother Andy, you need to understand at that point in my life, my self-esteem had been so devastated and destroyed by the abuse that I reasoned in my mind and in my heart that this was the only man on planet earth that was low enough to love somebody like me. Well, they actually uh, came here. She, they were in Florida, but they came here. She was uh, living with him in an apartment. She became pregnant in the relationship. They were struggling with money. Billy tried to abort herself, and she failed in the attempt. And then shortly after the failed abortion attempt, the apartment that they were living in caught fire. And God miraculously spared Billy and the little one developing within her uh, from any injury uh, as they had to escape. And then at that point, being totally destitute and with no one to turn to, she walks in to our pregnancy center. And of course, as we just loved on her, as you folks do, as we showed her compassion, uh, as we again provided that window into her womb, she turned from abortion to choose life. But of course, that's when our work just began with Billy. 
she was placed in the home of one of our uh, church members who provided residential care for her uh, through her uh, pregnancy. And another thing you need to know about Billy is a very important part of the testimony. She was in total, absolute spiritual darkness. I've met very few people in the United States of America that just basically was so ignorant of any type of biblical truth. I mean, she didn't even know some of the most basic stories you thought everyone would be familiar with, you know, Adam and Eve or the Noah and the Flood or David and Goliath. It, it just, it was all brand new to her. So she started coming to church with the family. And we were in a Sunday evening worship service. And Billy was sitting right about in this area right there. And, and uh, we were celebrating the Lord's Supper that night. And the message was taken from Luke chapter 7. And it recalls the story of when Jesus had dinner with a very self-righteous Pharisee. And if you remember the story, prior to the dinner, earlier that day in the city, in that Pharisee's city, his name was Simon, the name of the Pharisee, there was a woman that was forever changed by Jesus as she heard him teach and minister. And this woman had been a prostitute, a harlot, an immoral woman, a whore. And when she discovered that Jesus was still in her hometown that evening, over at Simon's house eating, she said, somehow, I got to get into that dining party, and I have to express my love for my Messiah and the forgiveness he extended to me. And you know the story, how she comes into the room, and you have to, you have to use your mind's uh, imagination to picture the scene. They would have been reclining to eat, and was laying on their side, propped up with one arm, the other arm free to eat, with his feet tucked behind him. So they're in that position, reclining, eating. She comes in, and you remember what she brought with her? her most valuable possession, an alabaster vial of costly perfume. And when she approaches the Savior, she begins to weep just out of appreciation and adoration. She notices that her tears are falling on the dust-stained feet of Jesus. And then she took her hair, and with her tears, she what? washed the feet of Jesus. And then she took that alabaster vial of perfume, she broke it and poured every drop on Jesus in the most extravagant act of worship found in the Bible. And then don't miss this, the Bible tells us, then she buried herself at the feet of Jesus. And the verb tense there is that she never ceased kissing his feet. She's just at his feet, just kissing his feet over and over and over again. Simon, this self-righteous Pharisee, he's watching this. He knows the reputation of this woman. And he doesn't say anything out loud, but the Bible says he thinks to himself, if this Jesus 
really were a man sent from God, if he really were a prophet, a teacher of God, he would know what kind of woman this is. And he wouldn't let a woman like that even get close to him, not to mention touch him. And he was literally repulsed by the scene. And just put the story on pause for a moment. Billy's right there. By this point, that girl is literally on the edge of her pew. Her eyes are about this big. Why? She can identify with the woman. She can identify with that immoral woman. And see, she's been coming to church. Pregnancy center's been dealing with her. This family's been working with her. She keeps hearing about this Jesus, God himself, who left heaven and came to this sin-cursed world to demonstrate his love for mankind by his death on the cross. You know, she's trying to understand all of that. And she's intrigued with the question. I wonder how, you know, they tell me this Jesus is God himself who came to, I wonder how he's going to respond to a woman just as dirty, just as filthy, immoral, sinful as I am. So she can't wait to hear what happens next. Because this is brand new to her. She's never heard this before. So the message continues. And if you're familiar with the story, Jesus knows exactly what Simon is thinking. He turns to Simon, he says, Simon, there were two men, and they owed the same moneylender a debt. But one owed a very small debt, one owed a very large debt. Let's say in our vernacular, one owed five bucks. The other guy owed 500,000 bucks. Well, Simon, the moneylender, forgave both men their debts. He said, debt paid, it's canceled out for both of you. Simon, i got a question for you. Which one of those men would love the most? Well, Simon didn't have to think long. He, I'm sure he's probably a little arrogant coming back with his response. And he said, well, teacher, I guess the one forgiven most would love the most. Je Jesus said, Simon, you've answered well. And then still addressing Simon, but now using the woman buried at his feet as his sermon illustration, he says, Simon... Look at this woman, Simon, this woman that you detest, that repulsed you. Look at her, Simon. When I came into your home, did you have the common courtesy to have my feet washed prior to the meal by one of your servants? No. But Simon, look at this woman with her tears of love with her tears of appreciation for who I am and what I've done for her, she's washed my feet. Simon, look at this woman. Did you have the courtesy to anoint me prior to the meal? Just common etiquette in that day? No, but Simon, look at her. She took her most valuable possession, broke it, spilled every drop on me to demonstrate that she was counting all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing me, of following me, loving me, adoring me. Look at her, Simon. Look at this woman you detest. Did you greet me with the oriental greeting kiss as I came into your home? No. But look at this woman. The entire time she's been buried at my feet, she has not ceased to kiss me. Simon, look at her. You see her, Simon? The one who's forgiven much loves much. And then in one of the most tender scenes in the Savior's ministry, he finally addresses the woman. 
Can you even begin to imagine? <laughs> he takes his hand that's about to be nailed on Calvary's cross for her sins and the sins of mankind, puts it underneath her chin, and he raises her face until their eyes met. Can you even begin to imagine that look of love? And, compa- and he says, woman, thy faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Now remember, Billy's sitting right there. You know what happened right that moment, right at that precise moment in Billy's heart and life? A miracle took place. God's light penetrated the darkness of that girl's heart. And when it did, all of a sudden she came alive. And she thought, wait a minute, if Jesus could love her, he can love me. If he could forgive her, he can forgive me. If he could give her a new beginning, he can give me a new beginning. And that night, Jesus came into her heart to reside as she invited him in to be her Savior and to be her Lord. Now, Billy chose an adoption plan. As I mentioned Friday night, I have never seen a more courageous act of love than a woman that places for adoption as she putting the interest of her child above her own. And, and Billy wanted her child to have a mom and a dad. She wanted her child to be raised in a, in a Christian home, so she chose an adoption plan. And I've said all of that to be able to say this. Do you know how Billy approached the adoption of her child? It was a beautiful little girl that was born. She viewed her baby as her That's her alabaster vial of perfume to be broken, spilled out, and surrendered to Jesus. That's first love, attendees. First love is when you so see the value and worth of Jesus, you suddenly realize no surrender could ever be too great for Him. No gift could ever be too extravagant for him. And you just simply spend the rest of your life looking for creative ways to love him, to express your appreciation, your adoration. And you see all of life as an opportunity. You see your ministry as an opportunity to love him because as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto what? Into him. First, love. So the application... Accept suffering, not as an obstacle, but as a stepping stone to advance me in the character of Christ. My time is just about gone. I may have to actually conclude this tonight, some of this. But if I do, I'll tie it into that fourth session. But let me just go just a little bit further. Let me get you, at least, we'll, we'll at least give you the, everything where you can fill in in your notes. And then if we need to come back tonight, we will. The, the fourth resolution that you see, live for Christ in all circumstances, love like Christ in all relationships, look to Christ in all things, and then lean on Christ in all challenges. Paul says, lean on Christ. Learn to lean on Him in all challenges. Philippians 4.13, he says, I can do what? All things through Him who strengthens me. And you need to see that verse in its context. We normally yank it out of its context. And we build great success stories around this. You know, great stories of deliverance. 
But it's in the context of enduring great suffering. Look at verses 11 and 12. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And I wish we had time, but please, on your own, that 2 Corinthians 11 passage, I put that down there to help you see Paul was qualified to make that statement. Because in that passage, you're, getting, you're given a, a list of all the sufferings Paul went through, the beatings, the torture, the imprisonment, starvation, being destitute, uh, I mean, in danger from this and in danger from that. He just goes through this litany of, of difficulty and adversity. And, pers- and Paul was able to say, in all of that, I've learned to be content as I've placed my trust in Jesus. Now look at those bullet points quickly. Challenges are intended not only to draw me near Christ, to find contentment in Him, but also to provide a platform to demonstrate to others that Jesus is enough. God is most glorified through me when I am most satisfied with Him. Now, I can deal with this one really quick. If I had time, we would go through those verses. All I need to tell the conference attendees is remember the man that was right here yesterday in his wheelchair. And there you have it. Right there. Everything that's being said right there, right? He's living it. He was able to express that to you. And we want to follow this man's example, right? Look at the second bullet point. Contentment in Christ, and this is important, is not acquired at salvation. Amen? Now, that's just reality. But learn through trials over time. To learn contentment in any and every circumstance, God has to place me in a variety of situations, both good and bad. That's why James 1 says, what? Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall, what? Into various trials and tribulations. Welcome those things, not as obstacles, but as friends, to take you deep in your relationship with Christ, to learn that He is enough, that contentment is found in Him. Look at that next bullet point. Every challenge or crisis in life is an opportunity to place my faith in God's providence. And God's providence speaks of God's ability, and we've talked about this all weekend, to take the all things of life and orchestrate them to accomplish His purpose for your life. Amen? You know, I go back to my mom. I mentioned my mom. I talked about how she went through her darkest hour and the pain, the perplexity. She couldn't see any rhyme or reason. She couldn't see the plot. But how did God use that to show the reality of Jesus to her three kids where we would eventually be brought to Christ? Now, think about that. My brother's sitting over here. I don't know if my sister's in the service. She's an active member here. She may be down in the nursery. Every one of us came to know Christ because that woman's light shined in her greatest darkness. And whatever God uses us to accomplish is my mom's reward. That she's enjoying even now as I speak. Amen? And then look at that last one. God's providence 
is the definition. God's providence is God foreseeing. He uses His omniscience, His ability to see, foresee, and He provides beforehand everything I need to accomplish His plan for my life and ministry. Let me just pause right there so you understand what I'm saying. And this is true biblically. You will never confront a need, you'll never confront a crisis, an adversity, any persecution, anything in life that God has not foreseen. And in foreseeing it, He's already made provision for you. And the exciting thing about the Christian life is to discover the little care packages He's already dropped for me. Amen? I mean, I don't have to twist a reluctant God's arm. No, He's already made the provision. So it's with joy I go to Him in prayer. I go to Him in excitement. That's why, what? I give thanks in everything. I, 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 I turn away from anxiety and worry, giving thanks with all my requests, placing my focus on Him. But notice this next statement. From my finite perspective, God's providence is veiled in mystery. Therefore, I will never fully understand the plot. The reason why so many things happen to me until God finishes the story. Therefore, faith is required on my part, so I do not give up on God too quickly, but persevere to the end of the story, because that's where the greatest blessing will be. When I cannot trace God's hand, I can trust God's heart. And I put down there Habakkuk, and I'll just say this. I've walked with God since September 1972. I can say this from my personal experience. I can say this for, from ministering for these many, many years. When you're going through difficulty, when you're going through adversity, just a little tip, God doesn't typically explain to you what He's doing or why He's doing it. That's not how He typically operates. Now, He, he can he, if He chooses to do so. But you know what he does? He gives promises because he wants to build your faith. That's why he keeps his plan veiled in mystery. So you have to place your faith, and your faith is strengthened through the process as you draw closer to him. And the book of Habakkuk, as we close, here's the prophet. If you're familiar with the book, he begins arguing with God, and he basically rails against God. God, you're not fair, and you don't care. And God just listens to his prophet. Just get angry and disappointed and rail on and on and on. Because prophet doesn't see God doing hoot. He doesn't seem to do nothing. Just like Melanie said. You know, why is God just sitting on his hands and not even responding? And then God basically says, oh, I'm at work. You wouldn't believe what I'm about to do. But he gives him no explanation. But then when you go to the second, 